Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Brett. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you doing today? Um, I'm wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Excellent. We can delve into that later. There's time. Yeah, our guest is Because first, we have a special guest, Miss Amy Mariani. Amy is an attorney specializing in mediation for Mariani Mediation Services in Boston, Massachusetts. For over 20 years, she represented individuals and businesses in employment, personal injury, and business disputes. But for the last, I guess, almost 10 years, since 2013, Amy focused on mediations and using a comprehensive pre-mediation process. She tailors her strategy in each case to the needs of the parties, maximizing the opportunity for success. And her mediation skills have saved hundreds of individuals and businesses, thousands of dollars, countless hours of time, and immeasurable amounts of stress. I don't know how you even put a dollar value on the stress, but we're pleased to have you. Welcome, Amy. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. And, and I love that last point you're talking about in terms of the stress, because there's actually a study out there that shows that one in five people suffer psychological harm as a result of being involved in litigation. <laughs> Two in five suffer physical harm as a result of being involved in litigation. Now, wow. are, are the lawyers included in that? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, that's no, litigants right. only. So the lawyers are an extra, you know, three out of five. Exactly. <laughs> I would argue that, that that statistic to me sounds very low, only 20%. So that means 80% of litigants don't suffer stress. I think that's low. I tend to agree. I think it's in terms of people who sought treatment for some manifestation of of harm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I would guess. It's a cool study. I sent it to you. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a very cool study. I mean, I know our, whenever we sit down with a client that's either talking to us about potentially bringing claims or has been sued, there's always that discussion that we have with them that Litigation is not pleasant. We do it for a living, but it is not pleasant and there's an emotional toll. And so just keep that in mind as we venture forward. So yeah, that study does sound interesting. I'd love to take a look at it. Yeah. I mean, it does fit, you know, it, I think people fail to account for the non-economic costs of litigation. It's not just the stress, but it's also Anytime I tell clients, anytime you're spending with me in a conference room preparing for a deposition or whatever it is, is time that you're not spending on your business that we are fighting to preserve. So, yeah, it's always better to solve litigation or avoid it. So, the few descriptors that I think come from Amy's bio that you didn't read that I'd like to just put in, if I may, because I do think that they lend itself to being a very successful mediator, and that is compassionate, calm, and curious, and even creative, right? That's also a word that is used on your bio. Tell us how those adjectives describe you and how that or those help you successfully mediate a case. Sure. Compassion is important because... People need to trust me when I'm mediating. They need to feel like I understand what they're going through so that I can explain that to the other side and I can create a bond of trust between myself and them that is going to know that I'm acting in everyone's best interests, not just the other side. So that's important. Calm, there's a lot of tension in that mediation room. And if I don't maintain 
a calm demeanor, no one else in that room has a shot of maintaining a calm demeanor. So if I can help bring the temperature down based on how I'm behaving and acting, that will help us move through the situation a little bit more effectively. Curiosity is a prerequisite, I think, for a really good mediator, because you've got to figure out why people are arguing, why people are not getting along. If you don't get to that fundamental why, that the situation arose in the first place, you're probably not going to get to solve the issue unless it's truly a very, very simple, somebody didn't pay a bill and they just couldn't afford to pay it. That's mm-hmm. one of the very few situations where the why doesn't matter. And then creative Sometimes you have to get people to stretch the way they're thinking in order to come up with a solution. So someone may want to get paid a certain amount of money within a certain amount of time, but that's not going to happen because of the realities of the business operating on the other side of the equation. They may only be able to afford a certain amount of money on a monthly basis or an annual basis. They may not have enough runway to continue to operate the business if they have to pay out a certain amount of money in a short period of time. So you need to sometimes structure things creatively and get the people to just start thinking outside of the box a little bit. I love that. I like it. Yeah. And I I think it's always a lot of lawyers will maybe underestimate the value of mediation, but just having an outsider's perspective because you're not vested in the outcome one way or the other, but you can give an objective view not that it's your job to rule on the case or anything or decide who's right or wrong, but having a voice for a client and having a third party hear their story. You know, you mentioned the compassion and the why part, I think is so important. Some people just need to be heard by someone and maybe they're even their lawyer hasn't listened to them. But I, I think in most instances, I hope the lawyer has at least, but being heard is got to be so valuable. It's an enormous benefit to the mediation process because there are people who may be able to accept the dollars that are on the table. But as you said, they need to be heard. They need to have their day to tell their story to someone who's going to listen and say, okay, I understand what you went through. Now let's talk about how you can move forward. The other thing that is a distinction that I notice Your clients can listen to me very differently than they can listen to you because the way you need to talk to them. To be their advocate is different from the way I can speak to them. I can be blunt. I can be very direct and say things that you can't without risking losing your client's trust. That makes an enormous difference. So I can give them the very same information that you're giving them, but I can do so in a way that is not going to alienate the relationship you have with them. Yeah, curiosity component to me is significant because... The facts are the facts, and those are laid out right by the parties, both to each other and then to you and the law. But there's so much more behind that. And perhaps that's where your analysis comes in or your bent on curiosity comes in because you, my guess is you're asking people questions about what brought them there and what's going to get them over the hump to get past this and settle. Exactly. One of the first questions that I ask people when they walk into a mediation is, tell me what you would like life to look like a year from now. Tell me what that looks like. And I don't ask them to put dollar figures on things. I don't ask them to tell me what they expect the outcome of the litigation to be or anything like that. I just want them to describe to me what's important. And that really starts the process of prioritizing their interests. Because if what I'm hearing is not that I want to have a million dollars, but 
I want to be able to pay for my son's college education, or I want to be able to stop working at this particular job and find a different job that suits me better. That gives me an understanding of the ballpark that we're playing in both monetarily and psychologically to satisfy their needs. Because at the end of the day, you can structure a deal in any way, shape, or form you want in mediation, as long as it satisfies the psychological and monetary needs of the parties. Yeah, I'm betting that you've received zero responses to the question of where do you see yourself in a year that it's still litigating this case. Right. <laughs> Nobody wants yes. to be doing that. So, yeah, yeah, we. Yeah. Well, every once in a while, I do, and that involves the three P's. What I like to call the three P's: power, punishment, and principle. Yeah. Power. If the motivation behind a case, filing a case, is to exert power. That's a really hard case to get resolved or to punish someone. Again, really hard case to get resolved. And then the one that I'm sure you hear all the time, it's the principle of the thing. I hear that just about every mediation. My job in that case is to sit down and talk to them, as, as we mentioned before, about what the real cost is of that principle. So that's the time, that's the stress, that's the money. I love to use a spreadsheet that I've put together of what your average small, medium, and large cases will cost. And at $500 an hour of lawyer's time, five depositions for a small case, 10 depositions for a medium case, that adds up real fast. And people start to understand, oh, I'm going to spend a quarter of a million dollars on a case that's worth 50. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I would bet even those people that say... I'm happy to litigate and they exert, you know, exhibit this whole power thing and principle thing. If you really dig down to it, that's not what they want to do. They don't. And once you, I think you hit the nail on the head with the analysis, which is let's start talking about what that really means in the cost and whatever, then you you can probably start to see some cracks and start to sort of spread that apart to get in there to try to get to a resolution. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's in the people in that situation, most likely have not had the benefit of someone like Amy painting a creative alternative scenario, alternative outcome. They think they want to be litigating because they don't see another option. The option is I'm either litigating or I sacrifice my principles and whatever it is that's driving them. But oftentimes there's ways to find solutions that are, you know, we say all the time here, you winning to clients, you winning doesn't necessarily mean the other side has to lose. You know, there's a lot of latitude in between those two goalposts. So it's up to us to find the solution. And if we can't do it ourselves, someone like Amy would be perfect. Sure. No, I was just going to say that oftentimes you folks have already offered up the solutions. Right. And it just takes reinforcement from someone coming in from the outside for them to really hear it. Mm -hmm. That's such a unique thing about the mediation process. Right. Oftentimes it's being delivered. So we're conveying it to the other lawyer. The other lawyer doesn't like it for whatever reason and is conveying it to their client with, here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong, instead of, look, this is a start and we can add to it or massage it. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, I'm always impressed by the same exact message being conveyed by a third party and being received in a different way. If you wouldn't mind explaining to us your pre-mediation process, I know it changes depending on the case, but generally, what are you trying to accomplish and how do you go about that? Generally speaking, I'm a big fan of it. I love when mediators do it to kind of prime the process in advance. 
There are a couple of things that I think I do differently than a lot of other folks. The first thing is I actually have a pre-mediation process. <laughs> there are a lot of mediators out there who don't. When I was practicing, I'd say probably 75% of the time, the mediators that I used didn't. You just sent in your memo and it went into the either world or whatever. And you walked in the day of mediation and you hoped they'd read your memo. Sometimes they had, sometimes they hadn't. That to me is a disservice to the clients and a disservice to the lawyers who are serving the clients because there's a lot that can be done before you even walk in the room. I can plant seeds in the minds of the lawyers and the clients as to what potential outcomes could be, what issues could be explored. So I generally will have a call with counsel only. And when necessary, I will have call with counsel and clients as well. Sometimes that's individual and sometimes that's joint. Again, it depends on the level of conflict between the parties. But in the call with counsel, I start talking about things like, what are the non-monetary terms that are essential to this agreement? What can we agree on now? Is something like non-disparagement going to be a necessary requirement to this agreement? Is confidentiality going to be an important aspect of this agreement? Are you going to want mutual releases? Who needs to be released? That starts building the consensus toward the ultimate agreement. If I've already got them thinking about what that agreement looks like at the end of the day, mm -hmm. then I've already got the lawyers on board. Usually right. they're already there, but every once in a while you got one who isn't. Then that also creates an opportunity for them to go back to their clients and have a frank discussion about what else is on the table, what else needs to be on the table. That's step one. Step two is really getting the attorneys to identify for me where they think the stumbling blocks have been in their discussions with one another. And to some extent, without revealing privileged information, what the overall impediments are from their client's perspective to settlement. If I understand those things going in, I can frame a process that's going to work more effectively. So I can start talking about is this a one session mediation or is this something that we're going to need multiple sessions for? Do we do two hour sessions because this is the psychological limit that one of these two people can take? Do we talk about segmenting the mediation to talk about specific things? So in business divorce cases, perhaps we're talking about the real estate one day, we're talking about the assets another day, we're talking about the liabilities on a third day. That really helps me create a process that's going to create momentum leading toward eventual resolution. It also gives you an opportunity, I assume, to flesh out really the facts and avoid surprises at mediation because there's, to me, there's nothing more disruptive to a mediation than a surprise. Maybe something I didn't know about from, I learned from my client or the other side, whatever it is. God, I hope uh, I'm not learning. Yeah, that's, that's an added time. advantage. And one of the other things that it does, and I actually started lengthening my pre-mediation process during COVID because I wanted an opportunity to make sure I could replicate the feeling you get when you walk in and there's that initial chit chat before an in-person mediation where you're developing a little bit of rapport and you're getting to know one another. I wanted to find a way to create that rapport on a totally electronic platform. So these pre-mediation calls with the clients was an opportunity for me to do that. Let's talk about that virtual versus in-person. First, are you doing a lot of virtual still? What's your take on the two? 
Right now, I'm about 70-30 in person. People have really been pushing for in-person. I am doing pushback in some circumstances because, believe it or not, right now, my success rate is about 95% on Zoom and about 85% in person. Mm. Prior to the pandemic, it was basically the same. It was roughly 85% success in person, and now I'm seeing more success online than I am in person. Why do you think that is? I think in large part, it's because especially when you're dealing with people who are stressed out over whatever the the litigation matter happens to be. So particularly in employment cases and personal injury cases, you've got people who are not used to being in litigation. We're not dealing with insurance companies. We're not dealing with businesses that may or may not get sued on a regular basis. We're dealing with people for whom this is probably their single interaction with the legal system. So there's a lot of stress involved. And when you have somebody, for example, who's claimed that they've been sexually harassed, if they're in the same building with their alleged harasser, there can be a really high level of psychological stuff going on when they walk into that building. Whereas if they're sitting at home and their dog is on the couch next to them, and they can get up between sessions with me and go get whatever comforting tea or coffee they happen to like, they don't have that same level of psychological stress. And that lets me get to work on the issues in the case much faster. In terms of pre-COVID and and now, are you able to handle or do you handle mediations outside of Massachusetts or Boston? Have you seen an uptick in that because of the use of Zoom? I've seen a huge uptick in the number of cases that I do that have parties from outside Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Prior to the pandemic, I would say maybe one in 20 cases had a connection outside of Massachusetts. Now it's probably more like one in five. That could be counselor located in a different location, or maybe we're dealing with a company that's located in a different area of the country. Actually, across the world, I've, I've handled cases uh, with folks in France. That was interesting. I had folks in three different time zones. So <laughs> that was really interesting to schedule, but it makes it a lot easier when we're doing things on Zoom. You don't have to fly me in someplace. Mm-hmm. So you can really look for, and I'm not just saying me, you can look for the perfect mediator for your subject matter in terms of personality, in terms of skill set, in terms of background. You're not limited to who's in your geographic region anymore. Right. So just going back to the, you know, the question about virtual versus uh, in-person, I guess I see your point, obviously, and you have way more experience with it than I do. I'm just wondering if the virtual, I think, the prevalence of video conferencing nowadays has given people great comfort with it. And so I I see the point about cases where there's some emotional element, not bringing the parties together. But otherwise, the driver on that is you want them to be comfortable, right? And so, but I also think that some cases settle because people are uncomfortable. Like you have to drag them to, they're busy and, you know, it's too easy for them to attend a mediation from the convenience of their office. They're not paying attention. It's not disruptive. You have to disrupt them, drag them downtown, somewhere uncomfortable, sit them in a conference room, have them wait, spend the whole day there and suffer and force them to settle out of pain. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? It does. It makes a great deal of sense. And I think that's a really great strategy when you're dealing with a business case where the parties just aren't facing facts. 
and they need to be sat down and their heads need to be banged together. And you need to say, you both are being very politely and diplomatically, of course, you both are being foolish. You're wasting time and resources and you could be doing better things with your company's time and money. In those cases, they buried their heads in the sand. They don't want to deal with it. And until it gets real, they're not going to settle the case because they're not going to spend the time to do so. So in those circumstances, yes, it makes perfect sense. Right. For those folks that may be listening that are thinking about, and I know I have, and I think Jeff has too at various points, like maybe I'm going to go and get certified and become a mediator. Tell us a little bit about how and why you transitioned from a practicing lawyer to full-time mediator. I transitioned in large part because I'm a really big plan in advance kind of a person. And my kids are 16 and 18 now. I've got one going off to college next year. And my husband and I, from the time we got married, really talked about what we wanted our second stage of life to be. And that involved a tremendous amount of travel. For those of you who try cases, you know it's really hard to do any real travel when you try cases. I can't count the number of times where I've gone on vacation with a laptop and spent my time getting ready for a trial the following week or working on a temporary restraining order that was due the following Monday or whatever. It's not an easy way to live the the kind of lifestyle we want to live in our 60s and 70s. So I started thinking about what do I want to do when my kids are off in college and thought about what I enjoyed about the practice of law. And one of the things that I liked was helping people resolve their issues. So I took that and looked at what's available to me. Mediation came right to the top. I got trained as a volunteer mediator and loved it. Did that for a couple of years and then hung up my shingle full-time in 2016. I think it's also, I love the idea. I have thought a lot about it because I just like the idea of being... First of all, something we do is we're problem solvers for clients, but as a mediator, you're a problem solver for both sides. And what a great feeling it must be to solve something that has been people at their throats, years of litigation, time, money, expense, stress, etc. It's just a nice idea. More cases can use a really good mediator. And I think a lot of people undervalue or underestimate the value of a really good mediator? Because there's some mediators that I think, like you said, don't do the pre-work and then they're just a messenger. They're bringing messages back and forth and they're not listening. They're not engaging. They're not being curious and they're not, most importantly, not being creative. I don't want a mediator to pass messages. I could do that myself. You know, the lawyer and I can do that ourselves. So That's the thing about mediation. You've got to be able to think non-linearly. It can't just be about passing numbers because if it's about just passing numbers, you're missing out on the why that we talked about before. Until that why is satisfied, those numbers don't mean anything. Amy, what's your approach to the start of a mediation? Do you always bring all the parties together, whether virtual or in person? Do you always bring everyone together, opening statements? What's your approach? I speak to counsel about that extensively before we go into a mediation because in some cases that just makes things worse. I had one a couple of months ago where someone was insistent on, you know, openings and my gut told me, well, I don't think you want to do this, but they were insistent on it. And I said, okay, if the feelings are that strong, here are the ground rules for what goes on in, a, in your opening, because the other side is very sensitive. And these are the things that I need to see happen and things I need to see not happen. This 
particular attorney said, yep, my client will, it's not going to be incendiary. This is just going to be, you know, a couple of minutes and boy, <laughs> I should have listened to my gut. <laughs> so talking to the attorneys and getting a sense of where their clients are at psychologically, mm-hmm. are they going to be able to process and, and really hear what's being said? Because if they can't hear what's being said by the other side, it's a useless exercise. If they can hear what's being said and can be dispassionate about or as dispassionate as possible about what's being said, it can be really powerful. So if I've got a plaintiff personal injury case or a sexual harassment case, and I have basically the insurer showing up on the other side who's writing the check, it can be really useful to have the plaintiff give their statement and talk about why they're here and how this has impacted them. Because it's sort of a mini preview of what they're going to be like in front of a jury. And the insurer needs to know, mm-hmm. this is a really strong person. This is a really strong plaintiff. Yeah, That can make a big difference in the number of zeros on that settlement check. That's a great point. And I think we do on the commercial side, not on the personal injury side, but deal with insurance. And a lot of times your presentation is more for the insurance than it is for the actual party to the case. And maybe sometimes the party of the case shouldn't be in there. <laughs> so it's not doesn't make things worse. And maybe that's some creative solution to that. Is there ever, a, a, and maybe it's on a case-by-case basis, and I've had mediators ask me, and again, depends on the case, be evaluative. In other words, offer your view and insight into the potential outcome of the case as opposed to, okay, I understand that's your argument. This is their argument. What about this issue? You know, just sort of not giving your analysis and giving your view, but sort of trying to delve into issues? I work on sort of a sliding scale. So Mm -hmm. I start out, for your listeners who don't know much about mediation, there are really three different styles that are commonly known. There's the what's known as the facilitative model, where the mediator just kind of helps translate and doesn't really put their fingers into the mix. The opposite of that is the evaluative model, where basically the mediator comes in and is not a judge, but really weighs in with their opinions and their thoughts about things. And then the sort of middle model is the transformative model, where you're not weighing in with your thoughts, but you're helping the parties by being a little bit more directive and letting them evolve the situation themselves using your guidance. I work on sort of a sliding scale among those models. Mm -hmm. I start out with a facilitative model. And as I see a need for me to ratchet up my involvement, I will ratchet up my involvement. So by the end of the day, in many cases, I'm not being entirely evaluative, but I am saying, I've tried a lot of cases. And if what they're telling me on the other side is actually going to come into evidence, juries don't like that. Right. So I'm not saying I buy your case or I don't buy your case, but I'm saying based on my experience and I've tried cases and I've been in front of this judge, it's hard to get this kind of information that you're telling me you're going to put in into evidence or whatever. So it helps the parties be a little bit more critical. I also tell the parties right up front, I'm a neutral party here, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to make you uncomfortable at times during this discussion. I'm going to ask you tough questions. I'm going to be hearing information from the other side that is going to suggest to me that you may not have thought through this particular argument. I'm going to push you on that argument and I'm going to basically take the role of the other side when speaking to you so that you understand what it's going to be like to be on the stand and to have to make this argument to the judge or the jury. Because if you can't make that argument credibly to me, 
you're going to have a really hard time making that argument credibly to somebody else. Uh, That's a great point. And I do think the sliding scales, to me, if you are too far in on, let's say, the evaluative approach, you could lose one side, right? If you come in and your evaluation is, wow, you're going to lose. You are going to get creamed. (laughs) You have no shot. (laughs) In all likelihood, the lawyer is going to A, get really upset. Unless the lawyer has already primed you and said, listen, my client is not listening to me, so I need you to say that, in which case that works. But it may work. But sometimes (laughs) if you walk in and you give that evaluation, the lawyer is going to turn off and the client's going to turn off. And so you have to really, I think you got to balance that. You got to be careful. Definitely have to do that. And one of the things that I love to do is when a lawyer thinks that they have a really, really great argument on a particular point, and that there's a controlling case or something like that, tell me about it. Not just in your brief, but pick up the phone and say, Amy, I want to have a conversation about this because I think this is really significant. Mm -hmm. And I think this is going to alter the way that this mediation could progress. Let's talk about it ahead of the mediation so that I know going in Mm -hmm. that I have this little arrow in my quiver so that I can pull that out and deploy that particular piece of information, that particular case or whatever it happens to be at a time where we may be reaching an impasse. And I can say, they've got this going on and what do you say about that? And how does this work? And how does this impact what you're telling me? So let's take a look at the situation in light of that. Does this reduce your chances of success by 10%, 20%, 30%? And that starts to really affect the numbers that we start talking about. So basically, I mean, it's priming and prepping everything and communicating in advance so that you're giving the best opportunity when you show up in mediation. Because if you just show up, the likelihood of settlement at mediation is far lower. I mean, obviously, that depends on the case and the issues, but you've got to prepare. A, you do, and then you've got to communicate. with The lawyers have to communicate with you, and you've got to communicate with them in order to really understand it. So when you walk in the door, it gives the best opportunity to settle. Exactly. One of the the most difficult mediations I ever did involved a case where the client brought a new lawyer in a few days before the mediation. Hmm. So I'd never met the lawyer. I'd never talked to the lawyer. I'd been heavily involved with the other lawyer and had a great strategy going in and had a good read on the the lawyers. And then this other lawyer came in and had a totally different style, Mm. totally different approach to the case. And it just made that first few hours of mediation really challenging for me and for the clients. Yeah, I believe that. Well, this has been so much fun, Amy. I really love your approach. I'm looking forward to using you as a mediator. Agreed. You can rest assured you'll be hearing from Bass Damron for mediations. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review, like the show, share it, follow us, share with your friends and family. If you have any questions, Amy's contact information is in the show notes. And if you want to hear from us about a new episode or a topic, please reach out to us anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Amy, thank anyway. you so much. <laughs> and thank you, Nelson. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks Amy. Thanks, Brett. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.